So we were in the book of James, but I thought what we'd do this morning is peel off of that and do a little Advent preparation as it is. The Star of Bethlehem has always fascinated me ever since I was a kid and always wondering what it was. But in order to dig in to the Star of Bethlehem and try to figure out what's going on here, just a little reminder that you know Hebrew sacred writing is very different than Western, modern sacred writing or writing of any kind. And where we as Westerners, we're obsessed with accuracy. You know, everything has to be accurate. It has to be true to every detail. And we're very literal. We take one layer and we want to get it just right. Jews and Hebrews, ancients, they were layered. There's all these layers of meaning. And accuracy wasn't their main uh, attempt. Truth was their main goal. And so... The accuracy can sometimes get swept under the rug as we're going for truth. Symbolism, the use of symbolism and metaphor, and the use of numbers to try to get truths across were all the tools that they legitimately had to try to get something across that was spiritual in significance. And so if we're willing to uh, let go a little bit, relax the grip, the grip, the grip, relax the grip, on, on our need for accuracy and our need for complete literal truth as we understand it, we can start to see the layers of meaning that exist in a story like this. And here's a little bit of Christmas trivia. Let's start off with this. Do you all know when Jesus was born? What day was Jesus born? Now, you know this is probably a trick question because, yeah, right? <laughs> December 25th. Okay, let's go with that. <laughs> I know most of you probably realize that it probably wasn't September 25th. I mean, we don't know for sure. It could be September 20, uh, December 20, it could be September 25th. It could be December 25th, but we don't really know. Most scholars think because of internal evidence in the birth narratives, it was most likely spring, and they have reasons for saying that. So somewhere around March, possibly April, uh, would be a, a good a good guess, but um, December 25th was adopted after the 4th century. After Christianity had become the state religion of Rome, what happened was is that paganism or the, the traditional religions of Rome were banned, and so everything was just converted. Pagan temples were converted to Christian churches. Pagan priests were converted to Christian priests, and if they didn't want to do it, then they were killed or they were exiled and they were, they were incentivized to convert, let's say. You know? And then pagan holidays were simply morphed over into Christian holidays. And so from December 17th until the 23rd was an important Roman holiday called Saturnalia. Some of you might have heard of that. It was in honor of the god Saturn, who was an agrarian god. But basically what it was, it was a feast that took you through the winter solstice. So as the days are getting shorter and shorter and shorter um, from the, the equinox, to December 21st, which is typically the shortest day of the year. Originally, the ancients were afraid because they didn't know the sun was waning and waning and waning. The days were getting shorter and shorter. And was the sun just going to burn out and die? They didn't know. And so after the 21st, when the days started getting longer again, it was like a rebirth. And so to the Romans, December 25th was the Dies Natalis, which was the birthday of Sol Invictus, which was the, the unconquerable sun. And so December 25th was the birthday of the sun. The Saturnalia, which was a week-long event, took them through that scary winter solstice, and then back out again. Many of the um, 
the customs that we have for Christmas, since Jesus' birthday was just overlaid on top of this holiday, many of the customs that we have for Christmas came from this holiday. The Romans did give gifts. The Romans did make merry and have this, this whole festival attitude. The Romans did decorate evergreen boughs and evergreen trees because that's it, the evergreen survived through the winter, never lost its leaves, never went into that place. And so they celebrated that as continued life. And so a lot of the practices that we have date back to that. And so we don't know what Jesus' birthday was, um, but we can speculate all we want. How about the year? Do we know the year that Jesus was born? (laughs) And the truth is we don't know that either. Um, We do know that it's probably not the year zero. Actually, for historians, there is no year zero. Did you know that? It goes right from 1 BC to 1 AD with nothing in between, although astronomers have a year zero. Why? It's It's just crazy stuff. Did you know there's no BC and AD anymore? It's now BCE and CE. So instead of before Christ and Anno Domini, which is the year of our Lord, it's now just before the common era and the common era. Always things changing. But what happened in 525 was that Pope John I wanted to recalculate the season of Easter. The Easter calculation is really a complicated one. It's always changing, if you notice. And so he commissioned a Scythian monk by the name of Dionysus Exegus, uh, which means Dennis the Little. He was probably a short guy. And to calculate Easter. In the process of calculating Easter, he threw into the bargain the fact that he hated that we were still calculating all of these dates, especially ecclesiastical dates, church dates, by the Roman system, which was called AUC, or Ab Urbe Condita, which means from the founding of the city. Traditionally, the founding of the city was 753 BCE. So what he did was calculate what he thought was Jesus' birthday, and he calculated it to 753 all right, A-U-C, and then reset that to year one, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, A-D. And the Pope thought this was a great idea, you know, because it got him out of all the, uh, out from under Rome once again in the secular system. Now, it took centuries before the rest of Europe actually adopted this system. It wasn't something that was instantaneous, but it has stuck now, and almost the entire world is using this system, which was then tagged onto the Gregorian calendar, which was reformed couple centuries later. What he did wrong, though, was just get it off by a few years. Because historians know that, for instance, Herod died in 4 BCE, and Quirinius died somewhere around the same time. And they have to be alive when Jesus is born in order for the birth narratives to be correct. So most scholars now believe Jesus was probably born between 5 and 7 BCE. And the numbers are getting smaller, so that's before 4 CE. Has to be before Herod's death, which is well documented. So somewhere in that time frame, somewhere between 5 and 7. Now, why are we going through this? Well, this is important if we're going to understand what the star of Bethlehem is. We need to know the timing of this thing, because it's a star. So it's going to be astronomical, or it's going to be astrological. It's going to be something, and we need to know dates here so we can see if there's any evidence for what we think the star might be. So before we get to the star, we've got to get to the Magi, right? Who are these Magi? It's interesting, of the four Gospels, there's only two birth narratives. There are only two stories of Jesus' birth. And only one in the Gospel of Matthew do we hear about the Magi. It's funny, only in Luke we only hear about the birth. The actual birth of Jesus is recorded in Luke, but the story of the Magi is recorded in Matthew. 
And so we've got these guys, and we're trying to figure out what they're all about. Why don't we just read it? And you can take a look in your bulletins, or if uh, Brandon gets them up there, then he's really a star. Okay, so Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Yeah. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Yeah. Any of you heard that James Taylor song, Home by Another Way? Oh, it's so great. Home by Another Way. Someday we'll have to play it. Okay, so who are these magi? Who are these guys? You know? In Greek, the word is magos, and a magos could mean an astronomer, a scientist, and an astrologer. In the ancient world, astronomy and astrology were the same thing. There was no difference between them. They were part of the same thing. The astronomy dealt with the actual physical objects in the sky. The astrology dealt with the significance, the symbolic significance of those objects. But they were one and the same, and we'll talk a little bit more of that about that later. They could be philosophers, they could be magicians, they could be sorcerers. Often magos is used derogatorily in the New Testament, uh, the magicians and the, and the sorcerers. In this case, though, they, they were considered wise men. And so all of these different categories of possibilities here spoke to a lot of learning. They were erudite, they were literate, and they understood the sciences to the extent that you could in the ancient world. Now we also know that they're from the east. So what was east of the Levant? What was east of, of Judea? Well, there's Persia, uh, modern-day Iran. And Persia was highly developed and had a high sense of science and civilization. And so it's very possible that these were Persian priests of the line of Zoroaster, Zoroastrians, who were also astrologers and astronomers. It's also possible that they were Arab philosophers, or Arab astrologers, astronomers. We don't know, but at least we know that they were from that area. Now, were they kings? Probably not. You know, Astrologers and astronomers were typically not kings. Kings had other things to do. They were busy. They called these guys to their court. So they probably weren't kings. And yet, traditionally, of course, we three kings and all, the, the church traditionally attached the, um, the three gifts to the three kings uh, and then assigned them to each of the three continents at the time, the known continents. So one king was from Asia, one was from Africa, and one was from Europe. And they even gave them names, you know, 
uh, Melchior, and I'm not sure where he was from. He was the one who brought gold. Gaspar brought the frankincense, and then uh, Balthazar brought the myrrh. And each one was seen as a different race and from a different continent. And this goes into the 6th to 9th century where these traditions are being developed by the church as we go. And they also fit in with Psalm 72, which predicts that the kings will bring gifts to the Messiah. And so it, it, it fits nicely with that. Were there three wise men? We don't even know. If you take a look at the text, it doesn't tell us how many that there were. But since there were three gifts, the church naturally associated three wise men. But it's interesting, in the Eastern Church, the Assyrian Church, the Syriac Church, the Eastern Orthodox Churches, they typically show 12 wise men, 12 magi coming to visit Jesus. And again, that's another symbolic number, symbolic of the perfection of government and leadership on the earth, perfection of a a complete cycle. And so we've got these clues that we can take a look at. So now we can ask ourselves, what were these magi? And we talked about them being probably astronomers and astrologers, which again, I said, was the same in this world. Why would we assume that that is the place to narrow in? Because they're following the star. And so, you know, these are kind of, uh, these scientists, these ancient scientists were sort of Renaissance men and women in the sense that they knew a lot of the different disciplines. But it's going to focus on astronomy because the star is so central here. And then we take a look at the gifts that they brought. Gold. Gold was always associated with royalty. Gold was associated with kingship. Frankincense was actually a spice that was uh, taken from trees as a hard resin, and it was used in incense, so it was burned along with the sacrifices at the altar, and, uh, and so it had that sense of the priestly duties, and so it represented priesthood, it represented sacrifice, And then myrrh was also a resin from a tree, but it was usually distilled down into an oil and was used for anointing, and it was used for embalming. And so it represented suffering, it represented bitterness, it represented death, but it also represented the anointed prophet, the seer, the healer. So these three gifts, again, another perfect number, three, a complete number, is representing Jesus' kingship, his priesthood, and also his prophethood. All those three. And also pointing to his death and to the suffering that he was going to undergo. And so the gold, again, authority, virtue, frankincense, spirituality, and prayer, and myrrh, suffering, and death. It's beautifully woven in terms of the symbolism of these gifts. And what is being said about Jesus' character, about his function, about his role in our lives, and about who these magi were as they were recognizing all this. And just a child, and a poor child at that. So now we get to the star. What is the star of Bethlehem? Well, the first thing you can say was miraculous. It was a miraculous star, because it doesn't behave like a star. I mean, how do you see a star in the east and then go west (laughs) to find a king following a star, and then it stands over the place. So that would be one kind of star. It's kind of like Kennedy's magic bullet, you know, that did all that damage and everything. That's, that's quite a star. So here we are following this star. Modern people have tried to figure out, okay, was it a comet? All right? Was it a supernova explosion? And so we've scoured. If, if you're wondering, how do astronomers today know if there was a comet or a supernova 2,000 years ago? Anybody wonder that? How do they do it? 
<laughs> computers. It's computers. What they, since we know precisely the motion of the planets and the stars relative to each other and the motion of the earth and all the heavenly bodies, we can plug them into a computer and we can just roll that thing forward and backward at will. It's, it's amazing. It's like a clock. And so you can take that data today, roll it all the way back 2,000 years, and you can know what the night sky looked like on any given day, night, on any given moment. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And when they looked for a supernova, when they looked for a uh, comet, they didn't find any. And they looked through the historical data, didn't find anything. There was nothing about this, this window from 5 to 7 BC that would give us some kind of heavenly occurrence like that. And if there were one, though, it still doesn't jive. Think about it. Herod didn't see it. His whole court didn't see it. His astro- astronomers didn't see it. The men from the east show up, and he has to ask them about it. Right? If it was a supernova in the sky or a comet, everybody would know about it. So looking for some sort of actual physical comet or, or supernova, probably not. Another thing that people looked for was a conjunction of planets. This is where planets line up in a line you know, with the Earth and with the Sun. And so if they come close enough, they just add their brightnesses together and you have a really bright star. There aren't really any conjunctions around this time either that we could find. There was one that occurred in 7... BCE, but by modern standards, it would have had a gap of almost a degree between the planets. So there was a close conjunction, but not enough that it would look really impressive. And, and again, any one of these still doesn't explain the strange behavior of this star, going before and standing over and all that sort of thing. So what do we have left? What can we look like? Now we can look to astrology and see if astrology can give us any clues. Now, as soon as I say that word, is anybody's skin crawling? Astrology? I mean, because we have been so taught, you know, that, that astrology is a cult, it's evil, it's of the devil, and so on and so forth. And the same thing happened to the early church. The early church was teaching that astrology was a cult. What they were really dealing with is what astrology had become. The ancient world believed fully in Genesis 1, that tells us that the lights in the sky, the, the stars and the planets and the various lights, are put there by God as signs and seasons to be able to tell us something. So that was believed. And the Bible itself is full of astrological significance. First of all, do you know what the zodiac is? Is anyone unclear about what the zodiac is? Just think about it this way. If you looked at our solar system... You've got the sun in the middle and all the planets revolving. It's as if they were marbles on a table. They're all moving in the same plane. All right. So as we on Earth are looking at the, tra- the, the track that the sun takes through the sky, all of the planets are going to follow that same track because they're all in the same plane. Does that make sense? So whatever track the sun takes at night, you're going to see the planets taking the same track. They have to because they're all in a plane. We call that the ecliptic. Now, as the Earth is revolving around the sun, if you look at the sun, there's going to be background stars. The stars appear fixed to us. They move, but they're so far away, you know, they don't seem to be moving at all, certainly not in the lifetime of a single person, and not even in the lifetime of all recorded history have the stars moved significantly enough. The constellations are still in their place. 
So as you're looking past the sun to the stars behind them, there is a band of constellations that go around 360 degrees, and they're divided into 12 constellations, one for each month of the year. And these are the astrological signs with which we're familiar, you know, Pisces and Aquarius and Taurus and so on and so forth. Now, the question you might ask is, how can you see the constellation behind the sun? You know, it blots everything out. The way you do it is at dawn. Whatever constellation the sun rises into at dawn is the the house that the sun is in. The Hebrews called the zodiac the Matzorot, and it it literally means a zoo, which is kind of interesting. It's the uh, collection of all of the constellations. And they believe that each constellation had a meaning, and the stars within the constellation had meanings, and the sun moving through these had meanings. This makes its way into scripture. These beliefs are not left out of scripture as much as we might have a bias against astrology and looking at it as something occult or something evil. Do you remember the, the, uh, the vision of the seraphim, the living creatures that guard God's throne? If you remember them, they were powerful angels that had four faces, one on each side. And one was a man, and one was a lion, and one was an eagle, and one was a bull. I don't know if you recall all this stuff. But those are the four opposing signs of the zodiac. It's Aquarius and Leo opposite. It's Taurus and Scorpio, which in the ancient world was described as an eagle instead of a scorpion. And so basically what you have is you have these living creatures that are looking in all possible directions at once. Right? If you get a really old Bible and you look at the uh, face page or the, the title page of each of the four Gospels, if it's a really old one, you'll see that each one, each of the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is associated with one of these creatures. So Matthew is associated with a man. That is because he focuses on Jesus' humanity and his work as a Jew. John is connected with the eagle, which focuses on the heavens and the focus is on, on Jesus' divinity. Luke is paired with the the bull, or the, what's the other one? Uh, I'm losing my, I was doing so well, wasn't I? Gosh. Okay, Luke is with the, with the uh, bull, which is Jesus as a servant, because it was the uh, domesticated animal. And then um, John, not John, uh, who's the last one? Mark is, the, is Leo the lion, which is king. All right? So each one of these had the, the, uh, the sign of the zodiac. And again, looking at Jesus from every possible angle and then the symbolism, the king, the servant, the man, and the God all together. And so this, again, the symbolism is moving us through. Now, there is one other thing that is really interesting, and I don't want to take too much time trying to explain this, but there's something called the great year. And this is a 26,000-year cycle. So as you're watching the sun rise into these constellations, what the ancient peoples noticed was that through time, the sun was backing up slowly. It was, it, was mo- it was backing up and rising into the constellation a little bit later, year by year by year. And so it was moving backward through the constellations as the earth was revolving forward through the constellations. How they figured out a 26,000-year cycle is kind of beyond me. It takes 2,150 years to move through one constellation backward in the great year. Have you ever heard that we're in the dawning of the age of Aquarius? You heard that one? Okay. That is relating to the great year. We are moving into, if you watch the sun rise right now, it would be halfway between Pisces and Aquarius, and it's moving backward into Aquarius. 
Right? 2,000 years ago at Jesus' birth, it was done in the age of Pisces. 2,000 years before that, it was done in the age of Aries, the ram. And 2,000 years before that, it was done in the age of Taurus, the bull. Remember what you can about ancient civilizations. You know, the really ancient ones between two and 4,000 years BCE, their symbolism was all bull worship. Right? And then you move forward, and then it changed to the ram. When you think about the golden calf. What was the golden calf all about? Right? Moses takes the people into the wilderness. He goes up to Mount Sinai. And when he comes back, they have built the golden calf and they're worshiping it. What that literally represented was them going backward into the old age instead of going forward into the age of the ram. And all of the symbolism from Moses on has to do with lambs and rams. But when Jesus begins... Then he moves into Pisces and all of the symbolism becomes fish and fishermen. The early bishops of the church and the Pope today, if you take a look at them, they wear that funny hat. Remember that, that funny hat they wear? It's called a mitre. It's shaped like a fish because it's representing Pisces. And he holds a crook, which is a shepherd's crook, which symbolizes Aries, which is a, a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament and standing right between. So these symbols are in there. The symbols are in the, the, the text themselves. But how are we going to use them? What are, we, what are we going to do here? And so as we're looking at what the star could possibly be, the words in the East, we saw the star in the East, en te anatole in Greek, can literally mean upon its rising. And that was an astrological term about the heliacal rising when, when it rose right behind the sun. And that was very significant. If a planet rose right behind the sun and the sun rose after it, then there was something significant. Was there one of these risings at the time that we are looking at? And the answer is yes. Jupiter had a rising right at April 17th, I believe it was. April 17th in the year 7 BCE. And Jupiter was always associated with kingship. And then later that day, it was occulted by the moon, which means the moon moved in front of it in the constellation of Aries. Now, any astronomer who's really paying attention is then going to know that there was a birth of a king in Aries, which was traditionally the sign of the Jews, the sign of the Hebrews. And so the wise men knew where to go. They knew a king had been born, and they knew that they needed to go to Judea. But notice they don't know where to go in Judea. They go to the capital. They go to Jerusalem. They go to the king's court and they ask where the king has been born because they don't know. The star gave them maybe as much information as it could. And then they're directed to Bethlehem. right? But on December 19th, the second thing happened. This stood over business. Epano in, in Greek literally was re- re- relating to the retrograde orbit. As a planet spin, if you lap another planet, it's, it looks like it's going backwards. It's just like passing a car on the freeway. The car looks like it's going forward, you pass it, and then it looks like it's going backward. So on December 19th, eight months later, they could have been in, in Judea by then, this, the Jupiter finally stops its forward motion and starts to move backward. If this was all timed perfectly, It literally stood over the place that they were if they had made it to Bethlehem and saw the retrograde begin. Is this all true? I have no way of knowing, but it's really interesting, isn't it? I hope you think it's interesting. But here's the thing. It explains the text. It explains the text. 
The rising in the east, the arising into the, the heliacal uh, you know, connection, it explains the standing over. And it explains why nobody else saw this except these men. I mean, it's just fascinating to me the way that, that all of this can work. Does it have to be? Can it just be miraculous? You bet. And I leave that completely open. But it's even more interesting to me if it's not. If all of this was timed, if there really were flesh and blood human beings like us watching and longing for the birth of the king that is going to change things in their world, and they're watching for the signs that are part of the universe that God has created for us, uh, that is just incredible. Incredible. What really guided the Magi? They weren't the only Magi in the world. There were Magi all over the place. Herod had his own Magi. He had his own wise men. Why did they see this and not the others? More importantly, why were they moved to actually take this journey? This was not a short journey across Mesopotamia and across the Levant to get to Jerusalem. Not only that, they're crossing between empires, between the empire of the Parthians and the empire of the Romans. Across those frontiers, anything could happen. Why were they moved to make this journey for a remote king that had nothing to do with them? That's what we really need to take a look at. Beyond the mechanics of this whole thing, what inspired these men to actually move this way? Looking for a king, looking for a prophet. And above all, if you think what a king and a prophet's birth should look like, why in the world would you be prepared to accept this infant, this poor, subsistence-poor infant in a dirty little town at the back of beyond? Why in the world would you be prepared for that? To say, yeah, this is my journey, this is my journey's end. I saw the great signs in the sky, and here is this, this little infant lying in a manger. Of course, Jesus was probably eight months to a year old by the time they got there, but that being said, you know, he still was in that condition. What prepared them? There's a theme in the Gospels that goes on and on and on, is repeated over and over. That knowing God that really knowing God, having faith in God, and religious purity or religious righteousness are not the same thing. They have nothing to do with each other. Think of the Good Samaritan. This is someone who stood wildly outside the law as far as the Jews were un- understood the law. And yet he was the one who recognized his neighbor lying bleeding in the gutter. He was the one who recognized God in the one lying bleeding in the gutter when the religious authorities walked on by. What prepared him for that? What prepared the Samaritan woman drawing water at the well when Jesus comes up to accept his offer of living water? She's someone who stood wildly outside the law. Jesus said that that people will come from the east and the west who will be welcomed into the kingdom before those who actually were the sons of kingdom, the Jews themselves. He recognized that. Think about the centurion, a Roman officer, the hated Roman occupiers and oppressors. And when he asked Jesus for favor, when he asked him for healing for his servant, he doesn't even need to have Jesus come and see him or touch him. He says, just speak the word and my son will be healed, my servant will be healed. And Jesus is amazed. Isn't that great? Jesus can be amazed. Jesus is amazed. Because he's never seen faith like this in all of Israel. And this is a Roman officer, a pagan, a Gentile, an oppressor, the, the centurion. And then you have the Magi, these Eastern Gentiles. You know, they are the first to recognize Jesus. Amazing. 
And weren't the shepherds the first to recognize Jesus? You know, there's an interesting little thing here. The planets were called wanderers because they moved against the static star field. They were called wandering stars. And the Magi were literally called shepherds watching their flocks by night. Ring any bells? Some people believe that the Lucan shepherds were actually the Magi in Luke's gospel under a metaphorical cover. I don't know if that's true either. I give it to you for free. Do what you want with it. But it's a lot of fun. You know? Shepherds don't really actually watch their flocks by night. They put them in the pen and go to sleep. You know? But not the Magi. They're up and watching their flocks. At any rate, they're coming from a different culture. They're coming from a different faith. And yet they're longing for a God to lead them. Longing for this king to come and right the wrongs that they see in their world, in their lives and culture. But their longing and their journey leads them to a very unexpected person. This subsistence poor child. Herod and the religious leaders of Judea, all they wanted to do was kill him. They felt threatened. They were trying to protect the status quo. They didn't see what the Magi saw. Now that song by James Taylor, there's a line in it that says, maybe me and you can be wise guys too and go home by another way. Maybe me and you can be wise guys too. What do the Magi have for us today? What can they show us today about our journey? Let's bring this home because if we don't, there's no point in talking about all this stuff. It just circles the airport and never comes in for a landing. Do you remember in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. We've talked about this before. Those three words in Aramaic change the whole scope of what it is Jesus is encouraging us to do. Because ask, selu, is like a police interrogation. There is, there is a lot of energy behind these questioning. And it's related to selah, which is to pray, which is clearing the space. And so asking in this sense is a real leaning in. It's a clearing of a space. It's an active asking. It's full of desire. It's full of longing. It takes us someplace. The star represents this ask. The star represents this desire, this longing that takes us to the seeking, bea, which is a diligent search from inside to outside, leaving no stone unturned, exploring all corners. This is the journey if you think about it, that they take, to do something different, to persevere. It's the very definition of faith from a biblical point of view, which is always action. So from the desire, from the star, from the asking, to the seeking, to the journey, to the persevering through difficulties and trials, to the koshf, the knocking, which literally means to strike a note or to hammer in a tent peg, which sounds kind of weird to us, but what it means is to create, to realize something that is now part of the community. When you strike a note, everyone can hear it. When you pitch the tent, you're creating a space that people can actually live under. You know, this is the gifts that they bring. And this is really the surrender. Remember that myrrh, that third gift, was about death. It was about surrender. What was it in the Magi's that allowed them to submit to this child, to this poor family, to kneel down, to worship, and to lay out their gifts before. It's the letting go of our expectations. It's the letting go of the last thing that we're clinging to that is keeping us from that kind of transparency, that kind of vulnerability, that kind of connection. 
And the gifts, if you think about it, again, from this point of view, gold is about desire, isn't it? Don't we desire gold? Frankincense, the act of burning and and raising up that sweet-smelling incense to, to God is about action. And then myrrh, the embalming fluid, the anointing fluid, is about surrender, is about submission. Everything in this story is matching up with Jesus' injunction to us to ask and seek and knock, to move through that three-step process of life that takes us on a journey that puts us right in front of the infant, the one that we would never expect to find. The Magi set out to find a king and a priest and a prophet, but they found a poor, speechless infant instead. The promise of their star was still unformed when they came face to face with it. It was unformed. It wasn't ready yet. It wasn't ready to do the things that they were looking for. But something in them had prepared them to see through that incompletion, to trust that it was going to come to fruition, to lay down everything that they had because of that trust. We set out to find our God, don't we? We look at, we're looking for meaning and purpose in life. But every time we do, instead we're presented with the infant. We're presented with the unformed. We're looking for answers, and we never get answers, do we? We don't get the complete answer we want that we think will take the risk out of our lives, out of our choices, out of our decisions. Hopefully we at least get better questions, but we don't get the answers the way that we want them. We get the poor infant in front of us. Can we learn to see beyond appearances? Can we learn to see beyond the unformed nature of what comes right in front of us? Are we going to be able to learn to find truth in the places we least expect it, rather than just where we're looking for it? To trust the promise of our star, our desire, when it's still unformed, but when God presents to us? What this comes down to is our God is an unassuming God a humble God. I just saw a movie and one of the lines was, beautiful things don't call attention to themselves. I thought that was great. Why does God need to call attention to himself? He doesn't. All he has to do is be exactly who he is. And Jesus always equated kingdom with a child, with a servant, and said, this is who I am. I am one with the Father. This is who your Father is. Humble, unassuming, a servant. Not coming to be served, but coming to serve. This star of ours, this desire that's burning in us, is our guide and our promise to really knowing the truth that will make us free. This is the promise of eternal life. Hayed alma, which in that language, doesn't mean life in the next life going on forever. It means life that is continually new and alive and exciting and fresh right here and right now. Jesus said, I came to bring you life abundantly. That's Hayeda Alma. What could be more fresh, what could be more exciting than life as looked at through the eyes of a child? Are we surprised that when we find God, 
we find a child who looks at life that way, who sees life as if everything is brand new, everything is exciting, of course we're going to find our God that way. Think about it. Why would we expect our God in any other form than the child that he said is the model for his kingdom, his will, which means the principles by which he rules, which means his deepest delight and desire and purpose? It's about the child. But will we be prepared to accept what we find as the Magi were prepared to accept what they found? That's the question of your Advent season. Can we prepare ourselves to see our God for what he is when we come face to face and lay out our gifts before him? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the season. Thank you for withholding nothing. Sending your son, a part of yourself, to live with us, to show us what you look like in human form, to show us what we can do to become one with you right here and right now. Help us to value humility. Help us to value poverty of spirit. Help us to value the things that will prepare us to be able to accept you when we really see you as a child in our path. Father, we want to learn these things. We want to let go of the things that are keeping us from the connection that we so crave. Thank you for doing everything that you can to bring us along, to bring us to your side. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. And help us to remember we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.